Hi there. Before we get started, I wanted to give a little summary of why this replay episode is important as we're doing some replay episodes while I take a break and interview new guests for the show. So this episode is about going to grad school. And first of all, I think it's really funny looking back on this episode because I had literally never met Steven before doing this episode. And that happens with a lot of my guests, but sometimes the conversation just clicks really well. And I think you can see that by the amount that we laugh together and the amount that we just like build off of each other's jokes and things that we say. So that's always a really awesome interview. And that's why I really want to highlight this episode. Another reason is that you know, it's coming around to grad school application time. So if you're someone who's maybe in school or you're already working and you've been considering going to grad school, I highly recommend listening to this episode because it is a firsthand experience of what it's like to get a master's degree in computer science. And it's only been a little bit less than a year since this episode went live. So the content is still highly relevant. I highly recommend for anyone who wants advice about grad school. So without further ado, let's dig in. And I hope you enjoy. Now to the episode. Good to have that second level of education because you'll learn more, you'll be get better at your craft, and your options just open up. You're listening to Blossoming Technologist, a podcast for young professionals in tech, discovering skills, careers, and tips for being in the tech industry. I'm your host, Marissa, and today we're joined by Steven Sam, a cloud and Lex Mobile Solutions software developer at Lexmark. Steven recently graduated from the University of Connecticut with a master's in computer science and engineering. During his master's program, he was a GEM full fellow and active member of his local National Society of Black Engineers chapter. Stephen is also a co-host to the podcast After Dinner Conversations, discussing challenges in adulthood with his two best friends. In today's episode, we talk everything grad school. We discuss why Stephen decided to get a master's, why it might be a good idea to get it right after your bachelor's, what the workload is like, and the experience of taking the GRE, plus so much more, answering any questions you have about getting a master's degree. This is such a fun episode and I can't wait for you to listen. Let's get started. Steven, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to jump into your experience with grad school and everything after that. So first, I want to get started with what first got you interested in the tech industry? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Marissa. I'm excited to be here. So I have an interesting story, I guess you can say, right? So I really got into the tech industry, I'll say, let's say it's 2000, 2001, like a three and a half, four-year-old Stephen. Um, and I was with my dad in Circuit City. And I think we were going to like get a new TV or something. And I'm just happy-go-lucky skipping around. And I remember at the time, my godbrother, he had a Game Boy, blue Game Boy color. And I was just going through the little video game out and I saw a green one. So I, like, I was pointing at it with my dad. I was like begging, like, can I get it? Can I get it, please? And he grabbed it and he said I could pick one game. Now, I knew nothing about any of the games there, but something told me to pick Pokemon Crystal with the little sweet coon on it. So that is what I grabbed. I took that home and that's all I played for, like for days at a time. Mom had to take my Game Boy at one point. So I was so addicted to playing it. 
But that was like my first real own personal technology. And then after that, it was just, I was always interacting with this. So like my dad had like flight simulations that I think somebody at work gave him and me and my sister used to play before we had internet. I was playing pinball. I had crazy high scores with my sister. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Pinball. Yes. That was my game. And, um, um, what's called mind sweep, mind sweeper, um, which I just learned actually how to play. A month I ago. I still don't know. I still don't know. I, I, we may have to talk about it later, but I just learned what the numbers mean and everything about a month ago, and I'm just in shock. Like, it, everything makes sense now. I could have been really good at the game, and here I was good without knowing what I was doing. <laughs> and then I think I moved from, like, the city to a town, like, when I was like, six or seven, and after, like, I think a year and a half, we had dial-up, but we still had, like, internet. And I was able to play, like, those Impossible games on Disney and Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, and all that other stuff. And then from there, it was just like my dad was always big with computers. And so every couple of months, he'd bring somebody's laptop or computer that wasn't booting up. Something's wrong with the BIOS. Something's wrong with the CPU. They overloaded their RAM and it crashed. And he'll break down what happened. He'll show me how to do it. And then the next computer that had that problem, he'll give to me hands off and say, you figure out how you're going to fix it. And so I got really good at being kind of like a geek squad little boy. And that kind of got me into tech. How old were you when you were actually by yourself fixing computers? Let's say, I want to say seven. I was a very nerdy kid to my dad's credit. Like I can do, I was doing like multiplication at like three in preschool, like one through like eight, reciting things. I loved reading. I still love reading. I just don't do it as much, but I was just like a real geek and a sports fan. So it was like, I was always up and doing things. So my dad just was really big on education. So he just made sure like all his kids were good at math. Like if there was one thing we all could do was math. Wow. I mean, that's good. I love math. And it always amazes me hearing how people first got started in the tech industry, because first of all, there's always a lot of people who video games is like the first start. And then second of all, just hearing like you starting at literally age four and some people not starting till college or after college. Um, It's really wild. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So Today, we're talking mostly about grad school um, and your experience with earning a master's at the University of Connecticut in computer science and engineering. I want to start with your motivation behind getting your master's. So after you got your bachelor's degree in computer science, what made you then decide to pursue a master's? Which is a really good question. It's broken up into three parts, I guess you could say. The first goes back to my dad and my mom to a degree, of course, as well. My dad, for context, we were talking about me fixing computers at four, five, six, seven, all that stuff. My dad told me, I believe I was at at six years old, that I was going to get a master's and graduate. Like, I'll tell you, my my dad, he he wrote the the prophecy. He wrote the script. I just kind of followed the directions. Um, So that was something like that was the first time he told me. My dad was always telling me that growing up. Uh, you know, once you finish your bachelor's, you got to go back and get your master's. Like, and he was always just pushing that narrative. So one of the reasons I pursued it just because, you know, it was always in my ear. So I was always curious. But what made it interesting was that I didn't want to do it originally in engineering. I was going to go more of an MBA route. So in high school, I was actually pursuing much more business related, like high school courses, like marketing and personal finance and stuff like that, that I almost 
was thinking about doing that going into college and between um, an advisor and my dad like convinced me like do something a little bit more techy. I chose computer science. And so once I got there, I was like, maybe I should go back at the MBA. So I have like a tech business background and I could mm-hmm. be like Steve Jobs or something and I could build something. We can go from there. But, you know, the second one came down to I had a mentor who was really big on pushing grad school. His name is Dr. Eric Hines. He's um, a professor at Florida State University. And my sophomore year, my junior year, my senior year, especially my sophomore year, he was always hammering to us, my friends, everybody, part of our learning community, which is called Scholars House, that we need to pursue higher education. It could be a master's, it could be a PhD, but you know, at some point in time when we're living, we're gonna realize our bachelor's might not be enough. And it's good to have that second level of education because you'll learn more, you'll be get better at your craft and your options just open up. And so by junior year, I had done a REU, um, research experience at New York Institute of Technology, literally in the center of Manhattan, 59 Columbus Circle. And I was like, okay, research is cool. Maybe I can do grad school right away because I wanted to wait a few years, work, get my feet wet. But something told me to just let's get it done. And so I applied to master's programs and the best kind of like package I got was from UConn. So I had applied to some jobs, too, and I was comparing the jobs versus what I was getting from my master's. And I was like, you know, I'm still in the swing of school. I still have some level of work ethic and not procrastination at an academic perspective. I can pursue this master's and be okay. And so between those two, and of course, my own drive, I always wanted to have some level of success and I wanted a master's degree for myself as well. I decided it was, you know, the push. If the opportunity is here right now, why wait? Just take it and go. So with that being said, I just kind of put my head down (laughs) and started running for my master's after I graduated. So I want to dig into a couple of things that you mentioned. So like you mentioned that your advisor said how like a bachelor's might not be enough one day. Yes. Could we talk a little bit about that? What were they talking about? And did you feel like that was like a big factor that determined you ending up doing your master's? Absolutely. So a little bit of context, Uh, faculty director slash he's more of like a personal advisor and a mentor to me because he's not an advisor for like STEM per se. He has PhD, I believe, in school counseling. And so he's very knowledgeable from an educational standpoint. So us and a lot of us who are in the learning community, which were like a bunch of black men, we were all being mentored by the same person. And so a lot of the discussion was that, you know, society is progressively getting more educated, whether people like to believe it or not, because you hear a lot of things going on in the world. People, especially in the U.S., you know, are getting more degrees and they're acquiring more education. And so there were stats being told to us in high school that, you know, we brush under the rug that, you know, a bachelor's is going to be the equivalent of a high school diploma and a couple of years to stand the third. And they kind of reinforce that because, you know, they've been in academia for six, 10, 15 years where they tell you like, well, I can't be replaced because my education is kind of limitless. I'm learning all the time and I'm doing the research that gives other people education versus, you know, I've met people because I used to do internships and insurance back when I was doing business who were kind of getting laid off from their job or, you know, they were doing underwriting and it just wasn't as profitable. They had to go back to school and pick up some sort of certification because the bachelor's just wasn't enough. Uh, And so it was kind of reinforcing the idea like, hey, you know, this is a good major. Like engineering is great. Engineering is excellent. You know, people will sell you STEM all the way to the cows come home. But 
it's still good to have that insurance. And even sometimes, you know, you learn during your undergraduate curriculum, you feel like it's not enough. Like I felt sometimes in my graduate class, I was like, damn, I don't even remember this from undergrad. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta go on YouTube and watch some like lectures or something. And so sometimes there is some insufficiency with your undergraduate curriculum that a master's will suffice. And if you're looking for employment, a master's looks it's much more appealing than a bachelor's. If you're looking for, you know, to go farther, PhD, you know, a master's can help in some context. It can kind of, you know, give you the second step before you actually really pursue a full academic career. So it was like pursue graduate school and you can find out more about yourself. You can have more opportunities. You can go into industry, you can go to academia and your options will open up. So you always want to have options was kind of the message that was being hammered home. I really like the idea of kind of doing a master's if you don't feel like you're prepared after your bachelor's. So I Mm -hmm. definitely felt that a little bit. I was like, oh no, I have to go into the working world. I don't feel like my education prepared me enough for this. Mm -hmm. Eventually got over it because I did not do a master's. I did go into full-time work, but I definitely feel that. And I feel like that would resonate with a lot of people. Another thing that you mentioned is you decided to do your master's right after your bachelor's. Can we talk a little bit more? What were the different things you were thinking about in terms of I should do it now rather than doing it in a couple of years? So I spoke to a lot of different individuals prior for me making that decision. Each end of the spectrum of what I should do, which is why, of course, you got to make your own decisions. Mm -hmm. And there were individuals, they took about two years off and they came back and they just didn't have that you know, that capacity to really be back into a school setting, like they were working part time or they had families or it was just so much time consuming, especially not being in that environment that it was hard for them to really pursue that degree. When I was, like I said, when I was doing internships back in insurance, I spoke to people who were doing MBAs at the time. And I knew people who took them three or four years just to get the MBA because they can only take one class at a time because they're working full time. So it was stretched out over three or four years versus like, you know, a PhD, depending on where you do it, is four to five, maybe six years, but you're actually doing all the work. And so me, I kind of like to, you know, all right, what do we got to do and let's get it done. And so one of my decisions was, will I be able to have the same level of focus pursuing my master's if I took a break versus if I went straight through. And I probably could have. I have pretty good confidence in myself and I I pushed myself kind of hard. So I probably would be able to do it, but I wasn't ready to take that chance yet. And so it was easier for me to kind of transition to that. And it also helped that I liked some of the job hours I got. I didn't love them, right? And I think if I had loved them, I probably would have went to work first. There were good offers, but they weren't over the top. Oh, I hit a home run. I got to go work. So it was like, all right, let me, you know, go to school for two years and check the market again. But what did help. So I applied only to master's programs. Now, my mentor, if he was on this call, he would tell me I should have just applied for PhD because to this day, he still wants me to do PhD. But I applied a master's program just because I wasn't sure if I could commit to the duration of a PhD program. So I applied a master's, but I actually received a fellowship, which is what really made that decision like hit home all the way after I accepted the offer. Um, And I'll talk about that a little bit more later because it has to do with my current employment now and I guess story of where I got there. But once I got the fellowship and essentially everything was kind of paid for, it made everything smoother. 
Cool. We'll dig into that more later. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the whole job offers and whether they had actually been more appealing than the grad school definitely makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So probably people who are listening are doing their bachelor's right now or have done their bachelor's, maybe are considering a master's. What are the maybe similarities and differences between pursuing your bachelor's and pursuing your master's? I think one of the biggest similarities is probably just the work that needs to be put in. Maybe it might be easier to skate a little bit more with the bachelor's, but I think once you get to your high level courses and a bachelor's degree, there is some level of work that needs to be done. And it's the same with the master's. You know, you really just have to find time to dedicate to it. But I think that might be as far as it goes in terms of similarities in terms of just taking classes and stuff like that. The difference is if you're living on campus, you're kind of almost detached from that undergrad life per se. So undergrad, you're having a little bit more fun. You're probably going to a few more games. You might be going to a few more bars. Like there's just a level of, you know, the best four years of your life, the narrative that people tell you right before you give in to live that four years. Whereas your master's, the age range of the people in the program can be from at the time, maybe 22, 21 to literally like 50. Like I had people in my classes who were like 40, 50 decide they wanted to get a master's or PhD. And so there's just this increased level of maturity around you because everybody's clearly here to get this degree and to work. Not to say that's about what people are here for the bachelors, but it's definitely much more fun to associate with that. But you don't have to take as many classes per semester. So I know at one point in my bachelor's, I was taking like six or seven classes because I was pressing myself to finish in four years. During my master's, at most I took were three classes at the same time. And most semesters I took two. So the idea is just like, all right, you know, you only have two classes. I wouldn't say you have more time necessarily. You kind of do, but it's just you have a much calmer environment to really focus on those two classes and what your purpose or what your focus is going to be for that degree. If you have small classes in undergrad, they're probably even smaller in your master's program. Like I had a few classes where there was about four students or five students. Like it's very intimate. You can't miss a day or hide somewhere and people don't know where you are. Like everybody knows you. Everybody's on a first and last name basis probably. And it's very, it's very intimate, but it's also very, very academic focus. The professors and stuff like that are really going to challenge you academically. Even if you're not doing a research track, they're going to push a lot of things that is good to know, but it might even be helpful if you're going to pursue a PhD in the future. So I've had like a lot of professors who who gave projects during the semester throughout on top of exams and homework because they want to be able to take what they're learning and actually have it applicable to what your master's is pursuing. And I think in undergrad, outside of maybe like, I know a lot of engineers have like senior design or like a culminating senior project. They have that. It's like that, but much shorter than like a 15 week period. And you do it like maybe three or four times, depending on what classes you're taking. And it's not like a company is sponsoring you. You have like four or five research papers that are like 10 pages long, quoted by like executive top level researchers from all over the world. And you've got to take that, maybe create a mini new idea and 
within those 15 weeks, have something ready for your professor. And if they like it, they might pick up your project for a full-time research project, put you under their funding, and maybe have you work on it on the side, or thank you for your work for starting them off and then continue on their own. So it is it's very, very, very academic focus, I feel like. And I think if you aren't ready to be immersed in that level of environment where I don't want to say it's not fun per se, like you don't enjoy conversations with people and there's not leisure, but it's definitely a level of seriousness. It's something you should wait a second because the switch from undergrad to graduate school is a sharp one. I want to say it helps if you're at the same university, maybe, or if you're at a funner university, but I think at most schools it's very uh, academic and professionally driven. Yeah. When you were talking about how you only had like a maximum of three classes a semester, do you feel like you still had the same or maybe more of a workload than even your semesters of six classes in your bachelor's? Sometimes, yes. Right. Um, And it's not just because of the work I had to do for the classes, just because those projects were need to be very detailed oftentimes. Right. And so We would have presentations on status updates and what was expected sometimes, which was kind of big sometimes from professors to really have this fully fledged project with, you know, a research paper written, sources cited, you know, studies, methodology, everything. It did take up more time. So which is why it makes sense. There was less classes, but it still would be less than what it was undergrad in terms of time management. I think what filled up my time probably what made my sleep schedule hectic to this day. I'm still, I'm working full time. I started about two weeks ago. I'm still getting my sleep schedule right. Is the fact that I was doing research independent from my actual academic track. And I was also working part time. Uh, I had an internship slash co-op. So it was like, all right, two classes doesn't sound bad. And you throw in research that could be anywhere from 15 to 30 hours a week. And then 20 hours a week from a co-op internship, all of a sudden the hours of the day are, are slim to none and you're, <laughs> you're just going through. So I think it's the engineering curse that I'm suffering, but it's definitely easier if you have those two classes versus four or five or six that are specified to what you want to study, I should say. Yeah. Oh my gosh. How did you survive? <laughs> I ask my, that, my, myself that sometimes too. Faith, God, <laughs> uh, my friends. I had a lot of my friends actually, whether at my university or not, actually end up going to grad school, whether for a master's or a PhD. Um, and us just kind of talking and um, pushing through. My family, especially my mom. My mom called like every two or three days to check up on me. Sometimes she'll send me food or I'll drive by the house and pick up some food, which is a blessing because I like to cook, but I'm a slow cooker. So when I take up two hours trying to cook a meal that's going to last for like three or four days, I'm like, ah, man, those two hours, I probably should have been working on this code and it's, it's whatever. But there was still definitely some sleepless nights just because I don't know if you have this same thing as a developer, but sometimes I really just get my eureka moments when it's like time is running out. I'm like, okay, this build's not working. This code's not added up. This function's not doing what it's supposed to do. I've been on Stack Overflow for, I feel like, for at least two days, and these solutions aren't working. And then sometimes it just clicks when, you know, I need to have this done by tomorrow evening. And all of a sudden it's the morning of that day. I'm like, oh, I can do this. And you're typing away. Now the solutions make sense, but they didn't tell you the part of the solution that was missing. And, everything's just clicking. And so unfortunately for me, I've had probably my most genius coding moments at like 5 a.m. with the sun rising. 
And I'm like, I'm a genius with like my eyes red. And I'm like, I got class at eight. Let me go take a nap. So, yeah, (laughs) it always happens for me. Like right after I ask for help from someone, as soon as I send that text message or whatever, I figure it out. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. are you kidding me? Like that happens in my job all the time. Anytime. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's common. I think, I think sometimes, and that's why procrastination, I think is sometimes so common, especially for like programmers is that pressure to figure something out. And so sometimes what I've been doing more recently is I would just set an earlier deadline and like try to tell myself, it's it's due here. Figure it out right here. That way you have this extra time you can work on other stuff that you need to work on. And so, and it helps sometimes. It does. It does help. I can never trick myself into that. I've tried that before and I'm like, no, it's not due then. I need like someone else to tell me when it's due. My my success rate is low, but it has worked a few times. That's what I should say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate the tip. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you actually talked a little bit about the research that you did during your master's. And my understanding of a master's program is that it's typically you either do research or you don't do research. And that's most of my understanding. I'm sure others who are maybe curious about master's maybe would like to know more. Can you talk a little bit about the research component of a master's and whether that's always required? Absolutely. So Two tracks, of course, research and non-research. Now, the research track is usually specified for like individuals who want to pursue a PhD, right? Because in order to pursue a PhD um, at some form or some level, you need to have some level of documented research. Now, if you come out of undergrad, it's a little bit more lenient. You know, you could have an REU, which is a summer research experience. You could do like work in a lab for a professor and that will suffice in a master's program. Let's say you didn't do any in undergrad because, like I said, there's only two, maybe three classes per semester. It becomes much more of an onus on the individual taking it, saying, hey, if you want to pursue a Ph.D. where you're going to be writing a lot of research papers and doing a lot of reading, you need to demonstrate that you can do that. And so oftentimes the main difference between a research versus non-research master's is a non-research master's most likely is one for employment. Like, you know, you're getting this skill set because either your company's paying for it or you want to go work somewhere and this is going to help suffice that criteria. Versus research, you can use it to go into work, but also if you decide that you want to pursue a PhD, it will help like supplement whatever lack in research experience you may have. Not to say, I want to make sure I'm clear, that you can't get into PhD programs without ever doing research, because that's not impossible. It's done by plenty of people. I know people who've done that before, but it just helps with the transition. It also helps with people looking at your body of work, particularly for my master's program. I came in and I wasn't sure if I wanted to do research or do a thesis, I should say. So I declared a non-thesis track and then I got into the program and I had my advisor who was probably my favorite professor at my university during undergrad. So it was, it was a good match. And I had spoken to her and I talked to some of my mentors related to my field, but we're in academia and they're saying, pick up some research. You don't have to do a thesis, but pick up some research. So I talked to her about it. She said she had an open project, which is um, the one I was, was going to tell you about, which is the depression and sleep quality prediction. 
And it was started off with me just, you know, learning about it. So learning about, you know, networks, learn how they set up their server, their data protection, all the nuances of that. And then a transition over to data analysis, a lot of data mining and stuff of that nature. And so I was still on a non-research track, but because I had went out of my way to talk to my professor and decided to pursue research, I was meeting weekly with the team. It was her, myself. My first year was four PhD students. The second year, it was like three. And then myself, the lone master students working on this project that's been going on for about, I think, a year and a half or two. Now, the project, which is called um, Life Rhythm, was in combination with the computer science and engineering department at my university, as well as our healthcare um, fraction, which is called UConn Health. We were working specifically with a psychologist. His name is um, Jay Ash. I can't remember his last name, but God bless him because he was very helpful during my research. And of course, my professor, Dr. Bing Wong. And we were doing depression research based on phone data, right? A lot of the times, you know, depressed individuals have a multitude of things that they could be depressed about. So the goal of the study was try to use people's phones to see if we can figure out what that is attributed to, right? And now there was two sides of that. There was looking at the phone data and then physical data as well. So we collected location data from a Wi-Fi and a GPS perspective, activity, so how much the phone might be moving around in your pocket, the orientation of the phone, and very, very <laughs> particular data, especially for Android. Android gives you down to like milliseconds of when the phone just moved to the left or something. Oh, my God. Um, it's, it's the, the, if you saw, like, I'm looking at 10 million rows of data fields, and I'm like, okay, um, let me parse this and see what I can use. So yeah, location and Wi-Fi were the big things for that one. And on the physical side, we had Fitbits that we'll give to the participants that, of course, we linked our code to Fitbits API. So we sign in with that and we can collect their sleep data. So how well they're sleeping, how long they're sleeping, what stage of sleep they're in, is it a deep sleep, are they half asleep, are they maybe asleep? You know, of course, how much activity are they doing? You know, are they working out a lot? They're not working out a lot. What's their heart rate looking like? So we can collect all that data. And of course, the psychologist works with these individuals. So he knows like, all right, he does his own survey. They're called quiz surveys. He can determine if these people have improved based on the medication they gave them or not. And that was kind of the main principle because depressed individuals are, of course, prescribed medication. And psychologists often don't know which medication to give somebody. So a lot of it's a trial and error. And so one of the things they're trying to circumvent that process is be able to see if we can use data to figure out maybe what medication might be better for somebody to take. And so we're looking at, my job started off looking at was that location and Wi-Fi data. So, okay, you know, how much is this person moving during the day? You know, are they at home? They go to school. How many miles are they moving? This, that, and the third. Is their phone moving a lot? Or, and the phone will tell you, like, okay, this person is jogging versus running, or they're walking versus standing or laying down. It's like seven or eight different settings. And really just getting those thousands of thousands of data lines and parsing through and saying, all right, let me look at this data. Let me mine this. Let me look at these numbers. Let me see if I can make something sense of what's going on per individual because everybody's depression is different 
And so it was a lot of looking at correlations. Do these numbers make sense? Can I make some safe assumption based on papers I've read and what the numbers are giving me to say, we might have to look at how individuals are sleeping more or their activity level. And maybe this help or maybe this help. And of course, the psychologist, I know nothing about the medicine, so I'll say nothing about the medicine, but he will kind of say, all right, you know, I prescribed this to work. What is the data looking like for this? Um, and so a lot of it came down to working with individuals who had no expertise in programming or in data collection and saying, all right, you know, this is what I can show you what's going on with your individuals, with the users. Because again, working with depressed individuals, unrelated from the data side as to protection of the individual, right? So IRB, I can't remember what that stands for, but it's basically a way to make sure people are doing ethical research on humans, right? And making sure individuals know what's going on, what you can or can't do. And we all have to take that training. But of course, again, we're working with depressed individuals. Some people are suicidal. So we have to have, you know, notification alerts on when people are filling out their daily service, how they feel. And if somebody is a little bit too high, you know, we got to be able to send email alerts and saying, hey, let the, everybody know from the study that this is what's going on with this person to study. Please contact them, this, that, and the third. So it's research in the sense of like, just being done to learn, but it's also in real time. These are very serious things that we're studying that we got to make sure these individuals are being watched, taken care of, and make sure everything's okay. At one point in time, when like the server is down, that's that's a big problem. You know, two o'clock in the morning, all hands on deck because we need to fix this because we don't know what's going on. And somebody could be, you know, not feeling well and we don't know. And that could be a very, very bad thing. I say all this to say this about my research. I took that upon my own whim just because I considered pursuing a PhD at some point. And that research kind of gave me an introspection of if I'm capable of doing research, which is yes. If I was capable of pursuing a PhD, which is also yes. Um, <laughs> and whether or not I like research, which in culmination, of course, is yes. But it's just be able to show, can you follow the processes of being a researcher? Okay. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> your research sounds so fascinating. Like I find the intersection of health and tech to be so interesting, but we're not going to go into that right now. Your research, since you weren't doing a thesis, can you kind of explain how that then fit into your whole master's degree? Like, did those count for credits? Did that kind of culminate into what kind of classes you took? That kind of thing. I guess this is a custom thing, but you can take up to, I think it's like two or six credits of, I guess, an independent study. So I would take them with my advisor and those would count as research credits to my degree. But I can only do that for two semesters. So in context, they count for credit. But in actuality, past that, it didn't. And it didn't hit me. My advisor made a comment that I kind of just did it for free. Like, <laughs> like my tuition was paid for everything, but that was more, again, on my fellowship side. So it was kind of like an experience thing. You know, I did get credits for some of the classes. And I was also, I don't think I mentioned, I was also a TA during some semesters as well. So TA work research, cool. I told you, it's something about engineers just working themselves in. I don't know what happened. Like Nothing you didn't do. Like yeah, you did everything. Everything, everything that fell on my lap, I said, sure, let's let's go with it. Oh my god! Another thing you mentioned, uh, having an advisor, someone who just did a bachelor's degree, maybe doesn't know what that is or what yes. they do. So, could you kind of explain your advisor's role in your master's program? 
Absolutely. So an advisor role in a master's program is a little bit different than a bachelor's program, depending on what type of university you go to. I believe in most universities, your first like advisor, at least for your first two and a half years, is like a general one that everybody has. And then maybe if you're an engineering person, by senior year, you have to pick like a staff member to be your advisor, but they more or less just sign off on whatever you ask them to sign off because they don't really have any respectfully, of course, they're doing it because they have to. You're doing it because you have to. You guys just work together from that nature. Now, a master's advisor is much, much more important because they're literally your advocate for what is going on in your program. So back to your pursuing research. If you're pursuing research, your advisor is going to help you decide who are you going to be like your co-advisor, who's going to be on the panel when you're doing your master's defense. They're going to be advocating for you to you know, acquire your master's degree. They're going to be working for you to get finances or funds for whatever project you're doing. They're kind of like the point guard, like they're supposed to be able to like anything you need, you got to at least be able to talk to them. They're supposed to at least some way help you out. And so if you don't have a good advisor in graduate school, which is almost like rule number one, I've spoken to almost everybody. If you don't have a good advisor, it can set you back years. It might mess up your experience in a program. It might keep you from graduating because they are so crucial to your success. And on a separate note, they also should be knowledgeable about what you're pursuing. And so my advisor was a specialist in networks. I had some interest in learning networks. I also had um, interest in like machine learning and a little bit of data science, but more so machine learning. She was a networks expert and she knew some machine learning and she was in a project that was using some machine learning. And so I was like, okay, that's a fit for me. There are professors who study quantum theory. They can't help me and I can't help them because I can't work on their research. So that's not an advisor for you. So you need an advisor who can match your interests. And then that way they can help you figure out maybe what classes you should be taking, whether or not the research product they have currently for you is good enough, or maybe they have to redirect you to somebody else's product that you can work in tangent. But they're supposed to be a guardian. They're supposed to be your advocate. They're supposed to be rooting for you. They're supposed to make sure that, you know, you can get in and out of your program being successful on top of, of course, you working for yourself. Because an advisor is so important, how does someone go about finding the right advisor? It's tricky. If you're at your own university, I think it's definitely easier because you know who's there and you can kind of get up a sense. If you're not at the university, I think it's really crucial that you do your own research, right? So first thing first, you got to figure out the interests. So that's going to narrow down your field per school to maybe, maybe at most like 10 professors, more likely three or four, maybe five. And then from there, most professors usually have like a website, and you can see all the students that were like either a PhD candidates or their master's students, people they graduated. Professors are pretty prideful individuals. They'll tell you who belonged to them and who they got through the program. I, I haven't met a professor who doesn't have that. And so sometimes it might be as easy as just contacting those individuals. Of course, a lot of universities have been doing remote open houses and stuff like that. So it's kind of easier to have those conversations with the professors there. If the school was in a different time zone, you couldn't reach them to you had access to them. But I usually tell them to Google the professor's name, see what comes up, see what, what PhD candidates worked on papers with them, 
see if you could contact them. And honestly, just see if you can just get a message or two like, hey, you work with this person. How are they? And it's tough. You know what I'm saying? People sometimes somebody can be really good and they'll just tell you they're really good or somebody could be not great. And they're like, oh, they're OK. Or they're great or, you know, because no one wants to leave a terrible review. So, you know, you kind of have to pry into a little bit like what was your experience like with this or how was it like working on this project and make that judgment for yourself. And so I often say that if there's anybody that you can look up, it's people in academia, unless they're like a really new professor. And even then they probably had to publish a paper at their own university. You can find them online. So I always say Google them and you can get a hint from there, at least whether or not they might be a fit for you. That's good advice. With your experience doing your master's program, what do you wish that you had done differently? A small part of me wish I applied to a PhD program, partly because PhD students get much better funding. (laughs) That's one of the bigger things. Two, along the way for your PhD, most students end up earning a master's anyway. So what I found recently is that even as a master's student, most of the PhD programs I would have done probably would have taken anywhere between like four and a half to six and a half, maybe seven years to complete versus if I was doing that in conjunction with the PhD, I technically would have been already halfway there. I know I don't want to pursue the PhD right now, but at that time, I'm not sure if that would have been enough to convince me to do it. I wish I gave it a little bit more thought. I definitely do wish though, I looked at a few other schools just to get a sense of other specializations that I could have focused on within my, even my own program. If I did, if I did stay here, Um, like I said, so my school had some decent options, but it was still relatively limited to some, of course, the bigger schools like Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, et cetera. Like those schools have every hat of computer science from, human computer interactions to robotics to theory that like you can't, there's no, there's nowhere to miss. There's everything you think you want to do. They have it for you. So I think it would challenge myself to pursue something that would have been even outside of what I might've glanced at in undergrad. I think I really, really, really would have had acquired some knowledge that would have been very uh, just cool to know or beneficial maybe in the, in the future, pursuing something that's not directly within like a networks machine learning type of background. So you talked briefly about having a fellowship during your master's program. Could you talk more about what that fellowship was and how that kind of enabled you to pursue your master's? Absolutely. So I'll I'll give a little bit of context, right? So after graduating with my bachelor's, I had like an internship at a startup company called Iron Young, and they specialize in artificial intelligence as well as computer vision. And so they're a company that could um, essentially do a lot of the video surveillance capabilities. A lot of these companies have to a higher extent because they're, they're a startup. So my startup that I was working for, they could identify like 34 different objects in a, in a video image. They had a license plate reader. They were working on a weapon detection algorithm. So like if somebody's walking, they could see if they have a gun on them or like something like a bat or like it was a lot of things working. And so I was working there for about two weeks and it was going well. I had a great time. I had a great time. <laughs> I was working on like APIs and I was working in JavaScript for the most part, but I went to like marketing conferences to help sell the product with them. And I ended up as like a liaison marketing intern slash programmer slash whatever you needed me. I fit into that mold. <laughs> All the things, everything, everything. 
And I had gotten a message on LinkedIn about an interview with a company called Lexmark, which is who I work for now. Now, I've gotten a lot of emails on LinkedIn about employment. Most of the time, I ignore them. But this, yeah. So, but this one time, I decided to entertain it because they said something about GEM. When GEM is a fellowship that I applied for prior to deciding on whether to go to grad school or not in the fall of 2018. And so GEM, essentially what it is, is a fellowship for individuals, particularly black, brown, minority individuals pursuing engineering, or I think STEM in general, but at least engineering. And so I had applied and I didn't really hear back. So I just assumed I didn't get the, from the fellowship. And I was just kind of like, all right, cool. I'm just going to figure out how I'm going to pay for this on my own. And she had mentioned that in the email. So I contacted her and she set up an interview with my manager, who I guess came across my resume or something. And he had, I already put my internship on my LinkedIn. I'm usually up to date with my LinkedIn. So I already had my new internship at the start of all my LinkedIn and all my resume. And that's the first thing he came to talk to me about. And so I had an interview with him for about maybe like 30 minutes and it went really, really well. And I think we had like a second follow-up interview and he asked me some questions just from a programmatic standpoint and what I was working on. And then a day later, they said, we want to hire you. And I was like, wait, <laughs> like, it, didn't, it didn't even hit me that I was like interviewing because like, like programs always told me like, you know, you should just interview just to keep your, your skills sharp. So in my head, I'm like interviewing, like kind of keeping my skills sharp, but kind of like, I think I could get this. And so I got it. And the funny thing about Lexmark is, so if you don't know Lexmark, Lexmark is a printing company. They make those printers. I had looked up, they had a office and maybe, I guess it was a warehouse that was probably like 20 minutes from me. And now my current startup was like an hour 30 away from me. So I had like an apartment like downtown in like Stanford. And I'm like, oh, if I get this internship, I can commute from home and save some money. I'm like, I'm, I'm great. And so when I asked them where the internship was, they were like, it's in Kentucky. I'm like, oh, I cannot save money because it's <laughs> a little farther. From it's a little farther. It's like 880 miles west. Okay. And so I was like, oh, this is great. And it was like, because I applied for a GEM fellowship, they could bring me on as a full fellow, which meant that they will pay for my entire master's degree and they'll give me a stipend for living, food expenses, whatever I needed. So my, I mean, my jaw just dropped because I'm like, wait, I don't have to pay for school and you're paying for me for, to find housing and live and food and everything else. And I'm like, this is great for the, the startup I was working for. I had just signed a contract to work, of course, during the internship. But I'm like, I don't know if I could pass up this offer. So I had talked to my bosses and the people who helped me find an internship because it was within like this startup program. And they were all very nice about it. They were very great. But this is in the middle of the internship. And so this was probably like June, let's say June 14th of 2019. My first day was two weeks from then, maybe. When an opportunity like that comes coming, I would have been a fool to say no. And so I accepted it, but I, I needed to be there within two weeks because it was already the summer. You know, school starts up in August and it was going to be July in two weeks. And it was like, all right, you know, can you get down here in two weeks? And I'm like, yeah, for sure. And meanwhile, I'm trying to like 
at least finish up the things I've been working on on my current internship. And then I'm like, okay, I have to like pack and then go. Kentucky. (laughs) Kentucky. So I drove. It was 16 hours. I don't recommend it for anybody. So I got the internship and then I was working on some computer vision, like startup, literally startup related type things that they were trying to do at Lexmark, literally unrelated to printing at all. I didn't touch printing until I was working during the school semester. And it went really well to the point, which is why I was working during the school year. When I finished my internship, it was like, what do you think about working during the school year? And of course, I'm like, yeah, why not? Of course. Of course. That's what I would expect. Well, why not work during the school year? This, this is great. <laughs> so with them, once I had the fellowship, it kind of eased me a bit because the I had a few different alternatives in terms of paying paying for grad school i could like switch to phd and then i would actually been given funding by the school and all this other thing that i was trying to avoid because i wasn't sure if i wanted to do phd so it kind of just made everything a bit easier for me which is what i really liked so if people are interested in also getting a similar fellowship i guess there's like a normal application right it doesn't always just come through linkedin absolutely so i did the normal application so what you really need right of course is three recommendations uh personal statement and I believe at the time was your GRE scores. And then you need to just declare what schools you apply for. So it's really simple. I think they have maybe like one or two like subliminal essays inside there, but they weren't long. It's like 200, 250 words that were okay. They're much more popular fellowships, specifically when it comes to engineering, like NSF, National Science Foundation, specifically GRFP fellowship, which are much more extraneous, but they're very rewarding. So like those ones that have like the same things I just mentioned. So recommendation and the personal statement, but they're very, very key on their guidelines. And on top of that, you need to have like a research statement, either a, what you want to pursue, how you're going to pursue it. What does that research mean for like the world at large? What does it mean? How does it impact humans? How does it expand research and like academia or in that specific field? It's like very, very particular, but it's because of course, it's NSF, National Science Foundation. They want to make sure to give money to somebody who's going to do breakthrough research that's going to be helpful, whether it be to the country or to society in some impactful way. There are a few that you can apply for. I found there are a lot of fellowships, especially in computer science, that after your first two years, they're available to you. So Google has a lot for like networks and machine learning. Microsoft has some good ones. Facebook, Adobe. Think of your favorite company and put in fellowship and they'll tell you what the requirements are and you can go from there. Awesome. I totally forgot that in order to get your master's, typically you have to take the GRE. Sometimes it's optional. Was that mm-hmm. during COVID? Cause I feel like I heard that some, some schools were now making yes. it optional. So it's optional during COVID. I had to take it. <laughs> I had to take it. And it was not a fun experience. It was exactly like those standardized testing we did in like middle school and maybe high school. Yeah. SATs. Yes. Except there's like 50 cameras in a room, one over each person in like the little hut. And there's like a bunch in the corner and there's like people walking around. There's also a person staring at the desk constantly. And so it just invites this level of unnecessary pressure. I recommend people study months in advance. Most universities might have a class that lets you take. It's probably cheaper than taking it at like a place. Try to do that because all the high level things you learned 
Asher University, algorithms, networks, data visualization, utilization, all of that goes out the window for the GRU when they show you trigonometry you haven't seen since eighth grade. And you're just dumbfounded. I was looking at congruent triangles, just kind of squinting. Like, I know how to do this, but like, why is this being tested on me? I'm trying to get a master's in computer science and people are asking me, all right, if this side is eight, if this side is six, and we have a circle here, is this actually the radius? And I'm just questioning my actual academic ability because I'm struggling with some of these questions. It's like the SAT. I think there was like three math portions, two readings, and one writing. And like the reading section has some very, very, very sophisticated words. From what I'm told, the more right answers you answer, the harder the difficulty is for like the next problem. Cause it's all on the computer. It's a digital exam. It's not, right. it's on the computer. It's all digital. You don't, you're not writing anything on the paper. You have scrap paper for math, which when you get scrap paper for math, it's not really helpful. You either know the math or you don't. You kind of just write it down just so you can see it and like calm your nerves. But most of the math is doable in your head. You're not really doing some crazy computation on those type of exams. There's a timer right there. You can see the timer. Doesn't really help with the nerves. It's a very pressured environment. I think the exam was like two and a half hours. I came out, I was like sweating. Feeling of taking that exam was probably on par above some of my worst exams in undergrad, just because it was that long. And I was looking at things I should have studied a little bit harder, probably. Oh my gosh. But but it is the gateway to do it your master's. So you would have to do it again if your school required it. Well, so your test score stayed valid, I think, for two and a half, three years, maybe. And so I can use my exam scores at least for another year. I did use them to apply to PhD programs when I did. A decent amount of schools made them optional. I know some of the IVs did. I think the only school I think I really had to submit them for that I applied to was like maybe Cornell or Columbia or one of those two. Okay. Well, I'm glad I asked about that because I did not know about that experience. (laughs) So kind of transitioning into uh, your full-time work now, in what ways do you feel that your master's program prepared you for your current job as a software developer? I believe I'm much more curious of what's going on. And I know the right questions to ask when things need to be done, which is kind of a little bit different sometimes when I guess you come out of undergrad. Research and graduate school in general is question-based. My advisor, like we'll be in a research meeting and I'll come up with some data points I created. I got some visuals, some nice graphs. I got some things I read in a research paper from a different group of researchers. And I was like, all right, you know, this is what I'm looking at. This is how I worked on it. This is what my code was, blah, blah, blah. And all that is nice and granny. And then there comes the questions. It's like rapid fire. It's like one, then it's two, then it's three. And it's like, I don't really like to answer that question. Here's another one. And they're coming at you. And you, you got to be ready. And you also got to be able to like think critically. I'm like, okay, why is she asking those questions? All right, she's trying to get to this point because we want to create this or we want to be able to make sure we can utilize this health related data properly. Is it like really showing us what we want to see or is just the numbers lining up in a perfect way? Um, and I think in the role I'm in, I'm on a team like a cloud scan team and they're working on a lot of different things and everybody's kind of touching their own piece of the pie. So it's kind of like, all right, I got to know what I'm working on. Of course, that's one. But two, I got to know what questions to ask. Like, I can't just assume everything I'm given is correct. 
You know what I'm saying? Because I work on something and I think it's correct. They think it's correct. And we just submit it to build and then it crashes or, you know, somebody finds a bug. It's like, all right, you know, I guess as a team we failed, but it's like, you know, why, of course, personally, like, why weren't you asking enough questions? Because maybe somebody could have answered that because, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. but sometimes, you know, you can ask the right questions. So I think it helped with that a lot. I think understanding of networks helped me out definitely, especially when it comes to working with printers. <laughs> very, very network dependent. And so understanding just uh, some level of data management and understanding that what you want to do on a system like a printer that it has to have very, very, very simple commands. Like you're going to print, scan, fax. You know what I'm saying? You got to make sure everything's kind of sound, at least for the basic human being. Corporations might want a printer that can print iPods or something. I don't know. But for the most part, you know, you got to be able to understand those capabilities. And I think one of the biggest things has helped me with is just understanding how to work with a very, very complex team. I've learned a lot of that from my internships, just because I've interned in both business and tech. But when we work on a team in research, it's a bit different because when school, you know, it's all right. You know, we're teammates for the semester. Cool. Internships that have worked. All right. We're teammates for the summer. It's usually like 15 weeks. I can get through it. The research team, we were here for two years. Like, It's, <laughs> it's, it's not, I don't like you. I'm going to go work on a different project. It's like, we, we're working on this project because we're, tr- we're all trying to graduate. And so we got to communicate. We have to we literally have to work together. We got to be honest. If we don't understand something. We got to, of course, be diligent, try to figure stuff out, even if we don't understand it, because sometimes a person you're going to ask doesn't know either. And that's a real thing, graduate school. A lot of us don't know anything. We're just researching to figure out the answers that we asked ourselves by accident. So <laughs> I think being in those roles kind of helped me prepare for my team where I can kind of transition. I still have to turn off my researcher <laughs> hat on sometimes because I'm in like production in a sense, right? Like I'm building things to be shipped out. I'm not writing papers no more. There's, there's no papers to be written. And I don't even like writing, but there's no papers <laughs> to be written. Now it's like, we got to build this maybe some documentation, and then send it out. I think it's helped me just for me to be better overall as a programmer and as a team member in my current role. That makes a lot of sense. And then we talked a little bit before about like the whole decision of when to do your master's. Mm -hmm. And now that you've done your master's and you're doing the transition from school to full-time work, what do you feel have been your biggest hurdles in that transition? I think it's the fact that in academia and graduate program, even though it's research-based sometimes is you kind of figuring things out for yourself, I'm still taking classes per se because I was in a master. So there's still, this is a sign to you, this needs to get done. And in work, I've realized sometimes it needs to be some sort of like self-auditing, like, all right, let's run some tests. We need to actually figure out if we need to work on something, you know what I'm saying? Or maybe there's a bunch of things assigned and you need to break that up and figure out what's actually critical to this sprint or to this cycle, this life cycle that we're going through. And I think sometimes what happens in school, I think that's why the transition from academia or from school to work can be so hard because you get used to, here's your assignment, here's your assignment, here's your assignment, this is the exam, this is your project, here's your second exam, here's your final exam class presentation done 
complete. And work doesn't really work like that. You complete projects, yes, but it's not like you complete it and then there's some level of winter break or there's something going on. Like there's a more continuous flow, but it's not always, all right, hey, my boss gave me this to work on. Like these projects are year long projects that you're just hammering at the peak. Like, okay, I'm going to fix this UI button that doesn't save these addresses properly, or I'm going to work on this bill for the printer because every time I'm submitting a print to cloud, it adds an extra blank page to PDF or something like it's literally just sometimes it's literally small things like that, where it's not really the assignment. It's just like, I just noticed this. I'm like, I think we should fix this because this could be a problem. This could be wasteful to stand the third versus somebody literally grabbing you and saying, yeah, this is what you're working on. And I'm going to grade you on it. That's the number one thing, you know, school, you work on something, you get graded hands back work. Theoretically, everything has to be an A, right? You can't, when you, you get it back until it's completed the way it should be versus school where it's completed and you're graded on what you submitted the first time. And so in that sense, there's flexibility and success, but success is inevitable. You have to succeed. You can't leave the work just for it to be idle on the side because so it's very interdependent between teams and different departments. Yeah, with the grades too, something I felt is that like a lot of times in school, the grades is kind of like a validation of like, oh yes, I know what I'm doing or like I'm getting some recognition, but at work, like there's no grades, like you said. So it's kind of like, you just ask for that feedback or Mm -hmm. feel like, you know what you're doing because no one's going to tell you like, oh yeah, you got to be on that. Like, no, it's just do your work. (laughs) Absolutely. And the team I'm working with right now, they're, in my opinion, they're very like transparent about what they're working on and like the quality of like, this is good. All right. This is not really that great. We got to go back and kind of rework this. Like they're probably the most transparent I've been on when it comes to really being thorough and what they're working on and making sure everything's getting done. That's amazing. Okay. So we've, we've talked a lot about grad school and life after work. I do want to leave some time to talk about your podcast called After Dinner Conversations. So could you tell everyone what is After Dinner Conversations and what was the inspiration behind starting it? After Dinner Conversation is a podcast with myself, my friend Mike and my friend Corey. Shout out to Mike and Corey who I both met in undergrad. And ironically enough, both actually uh, were in graduate school with me at the time we started this podcast. Um, And we're going to go full circle. I know, right? It's a little bit cute, just a little bit. And so I'll go full circle in two perspectives, right? One with the actual start of the podcast. So I told you about me going to Kentucky and driving 16 hours down there. So I actually drove down with my sister and I love music. Like I'm a big music, you know, R&B, hip hop, Afro beat, jazz, classical. Like I I love music, but I know I can't listen to music for 16 hours straight driving. It just doesn't work. I could barely do it for like four or five driving sometimes. And so I realized for me to survive my drive to Kentucky, I need to be able to switch it up. And so my sister already listened to some podcasts and I had like heard a podcast here and there, but I didn't really listen to them. So I just downloaded a few on my phone. She had downloaded a few on my phone and we just switched off driving, listening to podcasts and talking. And by the time I got to Kentucky, I was like, podcasts are kind of dope. And that was kind of getting me through my work days when I was actually interning in Kentucky because I was just throwing podcasts on 
and just work, work, work. And then I finished like two episodes and it was lunchtime. I'm like, oh, that was that was quick and everything. So I got really, really used to just every day listening to podcasts at work. And by the time I got back after my internship, which like I think it was eight weeks that summer, I was like, I want to do a podcast. <laughs> and my um, co-host um, at a point in time, I think it was like two years prior, he had his own podcast that he recorded on the university studio room. And so I got him. I talked to my friend, Mike. I sat him down. I was like, we should do a podcast. And now here, here's where the name comes into play. When I was a junior, I, I say when I was a senior, but it happened when I was junior, people will host like potlucks mm-hmm. a lot, right? Especially my senior year, we hosted quite a few potlucks. And after the potluck, and of course, potluck, you had to bring something. You could bring napkins. Don't come empty handed. <laughs> empty handed was unacceptable. Like if you wanted to say you got plates and you wasn't that good of a cook, or if you wanted to say, hey, I'm going to go buy some Oreos and whatever, that's fine. But it was it was never come empty handed. Come with something. But after and what we would cook, I'll, I'll say this: me and Mike was my roommate at the time, and Corey, we we will all bring something. But we would have our potlucks, and then after we would have just some really good and sometimes deep discussions about life for the people we invited to the potluck. And like we'll start the potluck at eight, and we blink it's four o'clock in the morning. We would be talking like life. We were talking about like, you know, success and failures, like things we're looking forward to, things we're fearful of. We're talking about relationships, you know, things we hope to do as we get older. It was like always like, you know, things within ourselves or even things going on in the world. Like that was the same time, you know, like Trump was president. We're arguing like about philosophies and like how people are going about in the world. It's like a, a bunch of different things going on. And looking back, I always wish I recorded some of those conversations because they were always good. Like if somebody heard those conversations, they'd be like, this is, this is great. (laughs) And so it was the idea of like, yo, we were always doing potlucks. We had great conversations. So after dinner conversations, we're just going to bring people what we've been doing most of our senior year of undergrad. And, you know, to get to that name, it sounds easy. It took us probably seven weeks to get to that name. And then after that, it was kind of like planning what we could talk about, like, you know, figuring out so somebody could make our cover art. Shout out to Darrell's excellent cover art. And it was just figuring out, you know, what to go from there. And then January came and we were recording in our university studio and then we just dropped the episode and then the rest just might be history. That's amazing. I love hearing the whole journey of how you got there. And yeah, deciding on a name is like the worst part. It takes forever. (laughs) The worst. And even then it's funny. So you're going to laugh at this because we wanted to pick a name that was unique. And we thought we we reached it with after dinner conversations. And maybe we just didn't do a Google search for this one name. But when we looked up our name, we found a podcast called After Dinner Conversation. No S, just After Dinner Conversation. And it's like, I think like a Christian or Catholic podcast that just talks about life. So like, I think our first episode or two, like they came up before us, but since then we are the first search when we put in after dinner conversation. So I feel good now, but it was definitely one of those things where we finished the name. We're like, damn, somebody has that name. Oh man, we should have used a different name. Now we're not unique, but it worked out perfectly for us. So, and I shout shout out to them. I'm glad they got their podcast and they're doing their thing too. So, yeah, that's good. And I have seen the cover art. It's so cool. I love it. It's like, thank you. Perfect. And then, so you've been podcasting for over a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. 
That's amazing. First of all, what has been your favorite part of hosting a podcast? For our podcast in particular, two things. One, I think it's a very, very way to kind of like de-stress. And it's kind of funny talking to my brothers just on a podcast because it's like sometimes like we don't realize how much we agree or sometimes how much we don't really agree. And we're trying to navigate like, okay, we don't agree on this and we're not going to have a shouting match on the podcast, but like, just explain this one more time so I can understand what you're saying. And so I like how my brothers just feel comfortable in that space to just like talk and have a blast. I like just enjoying that, especially when we bring people on because we have guests on the podcast here and there and they, I mean, when we bring on guests, it might as well be their show. They're having a great time. People love them. I get, we get messages saying, when is this person coming back? And it's good. I just like the atmosphere and feel for it. And it kind of just kind of brought a new level or different perspective in my life that I think is cool. And the second part I would say is the music. Uh, So we have, we have a segment. So one, two things we have our friend, destiny desk, shout out to desk. She met us a intro song. I think after episode 23, which everybody loved and it was great. So now we have like a little jingle and now we kind of feel official, very unique. You know, you can't find this because before we used to just play random songs in the beginning. But we also have a segment called Past Dogs, where we each play a song that is either we really liked, that we just heard, or that kind of fits our mood. And we just play it out and we have people like, you know, unprovoked, of course, tell us to like it or don't like it. And then at the end of each season, we throw it together into a playlist and then we just put it out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So we're a little bit behind. I, I got to we got to get the season two, three out. But season one is there on Spotify. If you look up past the Aux volume one on Apple or Spotify, it should pop up. Oh man, I listened to some of the earlier episodes. I did not listen to when you had your own jingle. So I have to go back and listen now. (laughs) Okay. I just have some final questions to wrap us up. I know a long episode, but that's okay. So one question I always ask every guest, what is one skill that you're currently working on? I'm trying to develop a little bit of front end UI skills. One, because I'm in a role that requires a little bit of that. And I picked that role specifically to challenge myself to learn that. Um, But I'm also trying to develop my own thing. So I do have a fantasy basketball league I'm in and I want to create kind of like a statistical website slash like a, I made my own like fantasy algorithm to like decide who's going to be in order. So I'm kind of making this like own little fantasy hub of mine. And so my challenge right now is to work on the front end. So I'm trying to learn a little bit of UI, but a lot of my experiences in Python. So I'm trying to touch react or angular. One of them it has been very tough for me. I'm stubborn, but I'm trying to learn some UI and try to make my own little website to do some of my own personal projects. Okay. So final question. Um, If people want to connect with you, where can they find you online? The best place from a professional standpoint, let's start off with that. You can find me on LinkedIn at Stephen Sam. I tell people Stephen with a PH like in the Bible. It's the same. (laughs) That's the spelling we're going with. There's no V. There's no V. It's Stephen like in the Bible. On socials, Instagram, you can find me at Raining Boss, R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G Boss. That's Instagram. You can find me those places. 
Thank you so much. I can link those in the show notes. Um, and people should also check out your podcast so they can listen to your great conversations that you're having. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's been really great talking with you. Like I've learned so much about grad school and everything. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to be tuning in to some of the other episodes because I've realized, and we'll talk about this after the call, we have a mutual on LinkedIn I was going to ask you about. <laughs> I'm glad we both stalked each other. <laughs> <laughs> I had so much fun interviewing Steven and getting a firsthand retelling of the realities of getting a master's degree. Make sure to check out Steven's podcast, After Dinner Conversations, and connect with him on LinkedIn or Instagram, which are all linked in the show notes. Hope you have a great rest of your day, and I'll see you next time where we'll continue blossoming together.